Hey, it's Antonio, and we're back with another episode of Who Cares If You Listen. I've been away for quite a while. I started a new job that was keeping me busy. My kids were puking, and I'm canceling interviews with guests and rescheduling stuff. And oh my god, I thought I would never get back here, but I'm here. So fret not, I didn't give up on the podcast yet. Still could happen, but we're not there. Sam Popovich is my guest tonight. I had a great time chatting with Sam. He is doing a PhD in political economy at the University of Birmingham, and he works in library sciences. Um, I think a systems librarian is what he called themselves. I don't really know that much about librarians or libraries. I just thought it was a place where you put books on a shelf and shush people. But there really is a lot more to it than that. And it's very interesting to kind of talk about it and look at the political ramifications. And Sam, being a Marxist, really kind of explaining to me what is political worldview, I think it was very fascinating. I learned a lot. And it challenged a lot of my preconceived notions of the world. And I hope it does for you too. And if not, well, who cares if you listen? Good. Awesome. I'm loving this energy. <laughs> It is. It has been what, like a decade since I've seen you last. I'm mostly going based on like still pictures and selfies off of Instagram. To remember what you look like. So this is this is good. It's nice to kind of get reacquainted a little bit. Yeah, I think I left Ottawa September 2011. So it's been nearly 10 years for sure. Yeah, it's been a decade. Yeah, I remember because I started law school and then you went off to University of Alberta. Yeah, yeah. I want to say the University of Edmonton. I don't think that's a thing. No, no, we're the capital, man. Yeah, you know, it just goes without saying it's the whole province. <laughs> Don't tell Calgary. So, 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 so for those of my less initiated listeners, uh, t- tell us a little bit about yourself. What are you doing these days? Uh, I am um, an academic librarian at the University of Alberta. Uh, I handle the website, the search engine, all that kind of technological part of the library. How do you handle a search engine? I mean, I, I assume that like it's just a bunch of mainframes and like an AI and it just spits out results. No, 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 no. Libraries are really old school. So it's um, we have a cataloging department that that either gets records from somewhere or creates new records. Then we pull them into the search engine. We index them. We tweak the indexing, all that kind of thing. There's no AI involved yet. I'm sure, it's coming. Because like I remember back in the day. You know, shout out to Maculata High School. You would just go and there are those little cards in that that big pullout drawer and you would do that thing. And then I figured once you had computers, that just that just did away with the with the whole thing. Right. So I'll, I'll tell you a dirty little secret, which is that our electronic records are really just the electronic version of those cards. Really? Like, literally. Yeah. Now, is that is that across the board or is that just like a U of A thing like the, you know, Jason Kenny cut your budget for AI. No, that's that's across the board. That's a fundamental technology. So back in the late 60s, early 70s, Library of Congress computerized the printing of those cards. And when it became totally unmanageable to deal with the physical cards, we just said, well, we have these computerized versions. Let's use those. So that's really what we do. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. I got I yeah okay cool. I mean so so you're so you're in charge of like putting the cards in the right computer slots so that they work properly or I I don't want to sound like an idiot but you know sometimes it comes naturally. Most, so let's say most of it is is designing the web the website. Okay. 
because because for my I have a lot of Ottawa friends that are that are listening to this and a lot of lawyer friends in Ottawa. And I think you you played a, a seminal part in our creation of of the our will database that where you can put in it's through the County of Carlton Law Association where you can dip, you know put the details about the wills that you have in your safe because we don't actually just have a government system like Quebec does and and it spits out and tells you if they they found a match right yeah yeah so my friend Jen Jennifer Walker is the uh, head librarian at CCLA shout out to Jen she's awesome yeah <laughs> and uh, she she got in touch with me um, to talk about building that the will system. And so I talked to her and I, I worked with one of her staff members to sort of do some requirement gathering. And then I built a basic uh, web web application that would do it. Um, then they took it over and styled it and that kind of thing. And that's, that's what's running now. So that was, I actually really enjoyed working on that. I don't get to do that kind of soup to nuts building something much anymore. So that was great. That was really cool. I don't even know how you learned that as a skill set. Like, were you just like, are you just a, a tech enthusiast by heart? I, I get that that feeling from you. You know, it's weird. I uh, When I was little, I hated computers. I hated absolutely everything to do with them. And then in high school, uh, a friend of mine and I, a couple of friends of mine, got into it. And, you know, I, I think my dad must have bought a computer and it didn't do anything. It just kind of sat there. And I was like, there must be a way to make it do something more interesting. And so I learned a little bit of programming did a year of computer science in undergrad and hated it. And then when I was in library school, it looked like maybe leveraging some of that would be, would be useful. And so I got back into it. Um, and so, so taught myself a bunch of that stuff. And my first library job after library school was at the university of Ottawa doing kind of similar stuff, doing a lot of, you know, programming and web design and that kind of thing. So, I sort of built it from there. Is that a big thing? Is that a big part of what librarians do? Like I have a very stilted view of what a librarian is from, you know, again, grade school, high school of like sorting and organizing books and shushing people. Yeah. And we still do, we still do both of those things. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, it turns out who knew that librarianship is this kind of big complex profession with a lot of different areas. And so there's, uh, there's librarians who do a lot of uh, teaching um, in in the universities. There's the the kind of uh, librarians who do a lot of programming in the public library, do children's programming, that kind of thing. But then there's the catalogers um, dealing with you know all the record creation, and then there's a lot of technology nowadays. I mean, there's tons and tons of technology in in librarianship, and so it was a good subfield of that for me to go into. And particularly, I guess you had an interest in in sort of an academic library as opposed to maybe a public library setting. Yeah, I'd worked in the public library in Winnipeg um, for a little bit. It was okay, but but there was something about what I really wanted to do was like be an old school reference librarian, you know, answering complicated music questions or Russian questions or something like that. That's basically what I do. But from a lawyer standpoint, people just call me up, ask these like really Byzantine questions about the planning act. And I'm like, okay, I'll just, I'll Google that for you. I can figure that out. Right. So we used to do that. I think we do that a lot less now than we used to probably because Google is there and people can Google it for themselves. But, um, but I did, I did want to go, I did want to work in universities. So I ended up getting, yeah, technology jobs in, in universities, which are, which are pretty crucial. You know, I, I, I've, I've learned a lot about sort of what it is that the research librarian does just from having to use 
our mutual friend, Jen, from time to time at the CCLA, when a lot of times you don't even know how to find the answer. You know that it's there somewhere, but it's just sort of navigating a whole bunch of different pay-per-use packages and trying to like struggle through, am I going to go look at a monograph? Is this somewhere online? I don't, e- I don't even know how to properly formulate the question that it is that I'm looking for. And so there is, it's sort of a jack of all trades to be able to do that. So, so when you say that's like old school, is that like, is that the, the pinnacle of the sort of librarianship hierarchy or how does that work? I mean, so the, the law librarian is, is an interesting example because that, that's so specialized and there's such an enormous amount of literature that is really complicated, right? All of that, the case literature is complicated, the legislation literature is complicated. Um, and so to really get your head around that and know it, that becomes a, a pretty niche thing that, that people like Jen know so the rest of us don't have to, in a way. Um, and so I, I think that what she does is a bit more in that that kind of time-honored traditional role than what I do. Um, and I think in the, in the universities, we probably do less of that now just because university life has changed so much in the last 30 years. I mean, I, I, I think looking back, I would love to have had a job like Jen's at some point in my career. But... One of the grievances that I have, and I don't know how much this is sort of libraries writ large or if this is just a law thing because they can, but it's like you're expected, at least at a baseline level when you're being accused of something or when the law applies to you, it really doesn't matter whether or not you're actually aware of the statutes and the case law and things like that. You just go ex post facto and you have to find the right case and find the right precedent that sort of helps you out. But a lot of this stuff that we're supposed to quote unquote know is behind a friggin' paywall. Like I, as a lawyer, want to learn how to draft a statement, you know, a, a notice of motion for substitutional service. And now, okay, I've been out six, seven years. I know how to do that. When I didn't know how to do that, I could pay Thomson Reuters like 300 bucks a month so that I could learn how to do that from somebody that really should have just been able to post that online open source for me. Yeah, no, that, that I mean, I, I don't think any librarian would disagree that that's a valid grievance. Um, what, one of the things is that there's an enormous commercial ecosystem that kind of surrounds librarianship and, you know, librarians seeing what they do as a kind of public good that should be free and open to all. And then there's this sort of commercial ecosystem that surrounds it that, you know, essentially is just trying to funnel public money into private corporations, but they've got a lock on a lot of that intellectual property. Um, so, I mean, I don't know the, I don't know the, the, the ins and outs of, of IP in terms of legislation and case law and stuff like that, but I know. Neither do I. Yeah. But, but a good example is um, everything published by the American government is public domain. Everything published under in, by the Canadian government is crown copyright. And so there's these weird IP restrictions on that stuff, which you'd think in a kind of functioning democracy, you wouldn't have to navigate. But there we are. <laughs> yeah, like once upon a time, I took all the small claims court forms for Ontario. I stripped the DRM from them and I merged them all together and and put field codes in so i could just put the plaintiff's name and it would just mm. auto fill everything and i think strictly speaking i've like violated the government's copyright so doug ford could come down on me like his 800 pound gorilla and uh you know i could suffer the the consequences of that but i didn't know that they're public domain in the state so that's interesting yeah yeah 
Now I read, I follow you on Twitter and I, I, I enjoy reading a lot of your musings, but I have to admit, I don't necessarily understand the significance or gravitas of them. I know what ProQuest is because I can find theses and dissertations on there, but I really don't know much about it. And it seems that this is a big thing that's going on, that they were just bought off by some other conglomerate. Yeah. The, this week, the big story is, um, the, the purchase of ProQuest, which already owns a whole bunch of other library um, companies, bought out by an, an even larger company. And the, the main worry in the library world is just this kind of tendency to monopoly. So we probably have, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in this either, but we've got, you know, maybe three, four big library companies that keep swallowing up the smaller companies and we use all of that technology. So they're, they tend to either be on the technology side, in which case we use their software, or they're on the content side, in which case we're licensing, you know, articles, case law, ebooks, whatever from them. Um, and the more they get swallowed up, the more we get kind of pushed into a walled garden of one company's stuff. That's one problem. Uh, Another problem is once it's monopolized, they can basically charge whatever they want. Um, And this goes back to that idea of like funneling public money to private corporations. And then the other pieces, uh, and they, you know, they kind of let the cat out of the bag with the announcement this week where the, the company that bought ProQuest is an analytics company. And one of the big things they were saying is they can now follow students from kindergarten to PhD um, because essentially what they're doing is building tracking systems. Uh, through that's not creepy at all not creepy at all and and the, the worst thing for us is they're doing it through libraries right i mean the, we're the ones who implement their software we're the ones that that do put all this stuff into effect often for good reasons because faculty want it or the public wants it or whatever and so we're we're enabling this kind of massive surveillance culture going on in in higher ed so. I mean, I mean, I'm assuming that doesn't sit well with 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 you. So, I mean, what what are we to kind of do about that, if anything? Well, no, that's that's a really good question. So, um, a, a blog post I wrote this week um, talks about. So, one of the companies that was purchased is uh, a library technology company that's used in probably every academic library in Canada, and a lot of academic libraries in the U.S., which is based in Israel, and so. The, the blog post that I wrote was like, well, what, what would boycott, divestment, and sanctions look like in terms of library technology? Could we break our contracts with them? Could we, you know, have a day of darkness where we we shutter those technologies or something like that? But we don't really know. We don't have a we don't have a, a history in Canada, probably in the states either, of collective action within the profession. Um, but there's been some discussion lately about with a lot of these things. Is there something that we could do? You know, is there is there an equivalent of striking in a virtual environment, for example? But it's really like really- like, like if you tried to strike with sort of a knowledge base like that. Like I'm thinking, if the library goes on strike today or everything shut down today, like I'm just gonna save my queries for tomorrow, kind of thing. I don't know. I don't. I I just I don't know how that would work in practice. So, um, <clears throat> in reality, I mean, faculty and researchers are 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 really outspoken. So they likely wouldn't save their searches till tomorrow. We would hear about it right away. Um, Back when the whole net neutrality stuff was going on in the US, there was a day when uh, a lot of websites went dark for for the day as a kind of 
you know, uh, consciousness raising piece. And there's a couple of problems with that in, in the library world. One is they think that we own everything. They don't know that we have all of these licensed technologies underneath it. So if we were to say, take our website down, they would blame us. They wouldn't blame. They wouldn't know that there's this connection that we're trying to make to anyone else. Um, but also because we are a public, you know, we're publicly funded universities, um, we're serving uh, taxpayers and students and faculty and that kind of thing. There's that kind of ethical thing, right? It, it doesn't sit well with us either to, to withdraw the services that we're meant to be providing. We do need to come to grips with that. We, need, we do need to understand what striking looks like in a, in a publicly funded environment. And I think in Canada, we haven't really reckoned with that. Uh, that well, except in, you know, Canada Post terms kind of thing, right? Cup W. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I worry about net neutrality. And I mean, it wasn't anything that was necessarily on my radar for a long, long time. But I, I understand the, the perils of kind of being stuck in these kind of gated, you know, sort of neo AOL type communities. But like, I thought very interestingly when Amazon Web Services decided to pull the plug on Parler. And I think a lot of people's knee-jerk reaction was, I don't like right-wingers and I don't like Trump supporters or racists or whatever, so I'm okay with that. But it was like, the idea was that there's this website that could be effectively, like, I don't even know if it's back online yet or if or what they've done with it, but like, you effectively just like wiped something off the internet. And I think that's eventually going to lead to this kind of fracturing of the internet where people are going to go into their own corners and their own queues and we're not going to have this centralized system because Amazon doesn't want to host these websites and Microsoft doesn't want to host these and it kind of looks like we're already watching it splinter before our eyes sort of probably probably and um so I'm actually interested in this question from the librarianship angle because what what in a sense what you're talking about is um, the idea of neutrality and intellectual freedom that we have in in the library, which is kind of defended in really black and white terms often by by the profession, but there's a lot more nuance to it. And I would argue that 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 neutrality never existed in the first place. You know, I mean, the origins of the internet are in are in like military applications and military networks with redundancy in case there was a nuclear attack kind of thing. So the idea that that was in any way neutral doesn't really fly. You're saying DARPA isn't this like kind of like utopian vision of the world online? I, you know, it's been a long time since I've looked into that stuff. And I know, I know there was like the whole research aspect of it, but uh, the military applications were, were foremost from what I remember. Um, and then the whole, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if you were online much around 97. Um, yep. when, when, when the internet sort of first got corporatized, right? And once that land grab happened, all that neutrality was gone anyway, I think. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to think because, you know, I'm a little bit younger than you. So mm -hmm. I, I got the IBM Internet service when I was about seven or eight. So that probably put me about 1994. And I remember there were like places where you could order things online, but it was like you had to mail us a check. So mm -hmm. it was basically just an electronic Sears Roebuck catalog. And then somewhere around like the early aughts it just it everything became it just became now it's an online shopping mall yeah and it happened so so you know you barely even noticed it it just overnight everything kind of just came up like that so it, was that an inevitable consequence of where it started i mean from from my marxist point of view yeah it probably was right uh wait you're a marxist yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, you probably haven't had one on your show before. What, I, I don't know. Like, I guess the last guy was on here, West Modes. I guess he probably identifies as an anarchist punk. He, he said that. So there's a little bit of nuance there. But, you know, I, I, I roll in difference. Tony Clement might be a Marxist. I'll have to ask him next time I chat with him. I, I, I'd love to know his answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. You were you were going off on uh, on a, on a thought. Um, what were oh, you saying? Yeah, just you know, once once there's any kind of social activity going on that's not being monetized, someone's going to want to monetize it. So uh, I, I probably was inevitable. Yeah. Uh, now, so since we kind of unpacked that a little bit there, I mean, I I have to ask because I I've always been intrigued by Marxism. I just don't necessarily understand it maybe not as well as i'd like to and you you were you were kind of helping me with this through baby steps in grad school many many years ago it's just i i i tried reading das kapital and it just reads like i don't know what it is like between him and hegel it's just this kind of like 19th century germanic like it's it's not this is not an ease i don't want to say it's not well written i'm sure it has very precise language but it's not like it kind of feels like an impenetrable fog. Like I feel like there's something there and people are reading it and they must be smart. But at the same time, I can't discount the fact that it's just like kind of Nostradamus. Like it's so eloquent psychobabble that doesn't actually mean everything, anything, but everyone's always kind of just nodding in line with it. Yeah. I mean, so Marx said there's no royal road to science, basically meaning like, you know, if you're, if you're going to understand it, you got to work through Das Kapital. How do you come into it? What was your, what was your, like, was this just something you heard about growing up at home? Was it, you know, an older boy at school kind of just showed you a book in the alleyway? Like, what are we talking about here? So I, I've graduated from high school in 95. Um, so four years after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, when Marxism was irrelevant and on the dustbin of history and the whole bit. And I was working, I was working for a, a big, well-known American multinational corporation uh, which paid well and should have been a good job. And I hated it. Absolutely hated it. And in my undergrad, I was in the university bookstore and I found a copy of the Communist Manifesto. And my first thought was, how can, how are they allowed to sell this? Um, you know, surely, right? surely this is, you know, beyond the pale. Um, but it was five bucks and I grabbed it because it seemed radical and, and I read it and it, it started to explain to me why I hated the job I had, what was wrong with it? Why was I not uh, engaged in it? Why was I not satisfied with the work? And then I, I worked through, so I would have been 18, 19, probably. Um, and then I, I worked through a bit of Das Kapital and I, I read some, you know, uh, other people's explanations of what Marx meant and that kind of thing. And uh, I didn't really get it either. And so for a, a long time, I was what they call a vulgar Marxist, which is uh, a Marxist who has the language, uh, a Marxist who crudely gets some of the concepts, but doesn't really, um, it, it is really dogmatic, really kind of stuck in, in an oversimplified way of thinking about that stuff. I was kind of in that position for a long time. And then another guy, uh, I wrote a blog post and he disagreed with it. And he, he threw out the classic Marxist you know, denigration, which is that I wasn't thinking dialectically enough. And I realized that I didn't. Oh, burn. Oh, serious burn. And I was like, well, what does that mean? 
Um, cause I knew. What does that mean? Well, this is, this is part of it, right? When, when in the nineties people were doing their half hour or one hour lecture on Marx, they would talk about the dialectic and they would say, well, it's a thesis of antithesis and the synthesis and that would be it. And so you know, yeah, I came up with this once when we were playing softball. I said the object of the game is to catch the ball, and by catching the ball, you end the game. And so the game invariably ends itself. And my good friend Dan Priest said, that sounds like vulgar dock worker Marxism if I ever heard it. See, and I know Dan. I was in a reading group with Dan, yeah. So anyway, so okay, so I, I had this kind of vulgar vulgar view of the dialectic, and I was like, well, I better I better woodshed. Uh, so like Charlie Parker, you know, not being able to play on his first time out. And so he goes back to the woodshed for six months and practices. And I started reading more, uh, more Marx. I started reading more Marxists. And, and I, I think, I hope I eventually came to terms with that m- more sophisticated Marxism that way. That's a long, can, long can you ever, can you ever really, I'm just looking at the book, I guess you, you suggested for me many years ago, an introduction to the three volumes of Karl Marx's Capital by Michael Heinrich. Mm-hmm. And I got through it and then, you know, life got in the way. I might get back to it at some point. I've got like, yeah, I've got a lot of books I need to catch up on. But anyway, that's that's not your problem. That's a me problem. But, uh, but you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like it can mean, you know, if you look at Marxism, it doesn't seem to be one sort of, synthetic idea or philosophy it's kind of like like i'm i'm catholic and like i was going to sunday mass before covid started and it's like there's the people that like take every single word very very literally and do the rosary 10 times a day and then there's the guys that are like you know kind of going for christmas and easter and then there's the ones who are like well god's everywhere so why do i have to go to a building and yet they still kind of all identify with with the c word and i kind of feel like marxism i don't like there's marxist leninists there's maoists there's people who say that uh you know capital doesn't explain everything and people are saying well of course it didn't explain everything it's from the 19th century you have to update it so like is there like a core tendency, like a Nicene creed of Marxism? Uh, so two, two things, I guess, while I'm formulating an answer. One is uh, Marx's work wasn't finished, right? Um, like, like so many people's work. So he, got, he saw the first volume of Das Kapital through the publisher. That one is, you know, the way he wanted to present it to the public. Um, Engels edited volumes two and three. Um, and so they are, you know, more or less what Marx intended, but Marx didn't have the final say on them. Uh, there's another three volumes, which are often called the fourth volume of Capital, which is edited by a guy named Karl Kotsky uh, later in the 19th century. So now you're getting further away, maybe, from what Marx wanted. And then there are all of Marx's notebooks, which are in an institute, I think, in Russia, which some of which, a lot of which have been edited and, and published. But it's an open work, right? We postmodernists are okay thinking about work as unfinished and, and, and kind of needing to be supplemented. So it's open in that sense. And the other thing is that Marxism itself understands that the way we think about the world and the way we understand things is historically dependent. So Marxism has a built-in way of saying that the Marxism of the 1870s is going to be different from the Marxism of 1917, is going to be different of the, from the Marxism of 1968, the Marxism of 91, and the Marxism of 2021. But it, it will be different because capitalism changes. In terms of whether there's like a Nicene creed, probably not, right? I, 
as soon as I think of a candidate, I can think of things that, that people would disagree with. Probably the closest that I would come to it is that the economic and social relations of how we live our lives and produce our sustenance and our and our our ability to stay alive as a species fundamentally determines how we think our values, our opinions, our way of understanding the world itself. And so that, to me, that's probably the core part of historical materialism. Well, hunter-gatherer, for example, would have a different understanding of how the environment is than a farmer, than somebody who's making widgets in the factory kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the a lot of people will think about capitalism as, you know, big companies or monopoly or something like that. And for Marx, it was the fact that private property meant that society divided into two classes of people involved in the way we're producing our means of subsistence. One owned the property and one did the work. Um, and it's that social division that's vital. Um, but but as soon as I say that, there, there are going to be people who would disagree with elements of that and potentially still call themselves Marxists. But I would say that's probably the, the closest we come to something to agree on. Yeah. Right, right, right. Because like whenever I hear the M word, you know, it always conjures up these ideas of like bread and toilet paper lines and pogroms and, and you know, gulags and the great leap forward and a lot of like, at least, you know, in living in Canada in the late 20th, early 21st century, a lot of very like brutal, nasty imagery. And that's always sort of the knee jerk response whenever you get anyone talking about Marxism is that it's, you know, it's sort of synonymous with authoritarian fascism, but you don't strike me as somebody who's like pro gulag. No, no. Um, I'm, I'm more on the, the, the sort of anarchist side of, of Marxism. And you can find both aspects of that in Marx and in Lenin and, and things like that. So it, it, it really is a big tent in a lot of ways. One of the things that Marxists disagree vehemently about is what the Soviet Union was. So if you're talking about a totalitarian state or an authoritarian state uh, in Russia, what, what was going on there? My view is that, in fact, the Soviet Union was a state capitalist, right? So you can you can lay some of that at the door of capitalism. But the other thing is, um, Marxism is all about his, historical specificity. And my undergrad was in Russian history. And if you studied Russian history, and especially if you look at Putin's record over the last 20 years, Soviet Union is not much different than what came before it, <laughs> you know, Marxism or not. Or what came after it. Or what came after it, yeah, yeah, and and I think what we'll end up seeing is, you know, I won't be alive to see it, but in a hundred years, when people are looking back at at Russian history, it'll be an eighty an eighty year period post czarism, uh, pre whatever comes next, um, but that won't look that anomalous, you know, in in the grand sweep sweep of Russian history, probably. It's just kind of like a, a homeostasis without it even seeming that way. It seemed maybe more radical than it was. It did, and, and for political reasons, right? I mean, the Cold War whips it up into being uh, the mirror image of what the West wants itself to be, and so it has to be demonized. Um, and, and Russia Russia and China um, have been demonized throughout their history, communism or not, um, from, from the Western perspective. So there's all those bits and pieces, right? It's complex. Like, like China is one where, you know, 
I have this image in my mind of what a communist or a Marxist society is. And it's like, there's people with luxury cars there. There's billionaires. People have skyscrapers. There's casinos. It's like, I, I don't know what that is, but it just seems like a lot of the opulence and wealth that I assumed would not exist in a society that even self-referentially, if not actually, refers to itself as communist or Marxist or Maoist or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. There's going to be people who don't um, and, and you know maybe who would make the case that what's going on there is a legitimate continuation of socialist, if nothing else, principles. But my my view is that, and I'm not, I, I don't know as much about China as I know about Russia, um, but that there's an ideological requirement to sort of draw the connections with Mao, draw the connections with the Cultural Revolution of the Great Leap Forward or whatever, in order to make the current Chinese government legitimate, right, to grant legitimacy to it, in the same way that Putin does, right? I mean, Putin plays with notions of it's make make America great again, right? Make it great. Make America great again is meaningless, except in terms of trying to gain some kind of legitimacy from history. Exactly, exactly. I have been like obviously in my spare time. I've you know I've been reading a lot. I've been really into David Graeber lately about like you know debt, the first five thousand years, and bullshit yeah. jobs, and kind of evaluating a lot of the things that I just kind of realize we're bullshit but kind of take for granted but it kind of always leaves me with the question if i don't like the way things are now if i feel that there's some sort of sense of injustice like what do i do about it i mean when people talk about abolishing private property i'm like i don't want to lose my house i don't want i don't want people to take my shit so i mean i obviously have a vested interest to a certain point in keeping things the way they are but then you know, every time you talk about trying to change the way things are, people just say, well, you just need to vote for my guy. And then when you vote for my guy, it's going to invariably change the system. But it seems like that hasn't worked in any sort of meaningful way in my lifetime or in the past. I don't know. How long have we voted for stuff in Canada? Like 200 years? Getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know if there's a question in there or not, or if that was just sort of a soapbox. It's it's hard, right? It's it's hard. If you're a Marxist, in theory, the idea is that you think our, our social um, situation should be fundamentally different than it is. And so one of the core components, for me anyway, is that revolution is necessary in two senses. Revolutionary revolution is is necessary for us to work towards, but it, it is also that we aren't going to reform our way out of the current our current social problems. Whether we like it or not, there will be some kind of um, breakdown and upheaval of everything to transform it. It will just by its nature get to that stage. And so the question becomes, what do we do in the meantime? So if it goes to it by its nature, does that mean that there's no maybe need for a call to arms per se that like the system is just going to kind of rot from necrosis by itself. There, there's, there are, there are um, perspectives in Marxism that, that hold to that idea. And I think maybe when I was younger, I might've, I might've held to that as well, but it's not deterministic in that sense, right? It's Marx's economic theory explains why conditions are going to worsen um, 
why profitability will fall, why eventually there will be no more room for the capitalist system to expand and continue to produce profit, and then something will happen. But what will happen is up to us, basically. Um, and so the, the call to arms is necessary, but also um, all, and, and so I think this is what, this is where I would say that, you know, in terms of what do we do in the meantime, we have to keep our eye on the, con what, what Marxists call the conjuncture. We have to keep our eye on what's going on in the, the social and political and economic world so that we can judge when the time is right to try to bring about the revolution, or if we see the revolution coming, make sure it goes in the right direction. Um, but in the meantime, there's a lot of work. Uh, there's a lot of laying the groundwork that needs to happen. And some of that is organizational, right? And we can see it especially in the U.S. over the last year or so with mutual aid networks popping up to try and substitute for an, an absent state infrastructure, right? The state's not going to do stuff for regular people in the U.S. And so mutual aid networks are, are popping up there. They're happening to a to a maybe a, on a smaller scale here, but all of that organizational work needs to happen. That's one side. I've been reading a lot about it in India, where right now it's like you've got these community networks that are basically like supplying oxygen because the federal government is basically inept and unable to do anything right now. And and there were you know in the in the early part of the twentieth century there were a lot of Marxists and Marx included who looked at village communes in Russia, places like India as perhaps providing the model for the kind of communist society that we would have. Um, and so those kinds of, of aid networks and self-organized collective ways of living are, are vitally important. Those have to happen. I'm not good at that. I don't have a background in that. I know people who are, that's their life. They understand how that works. They can do it. The other, heart, the other part of it is the kind of theoretical work, which is how do we explain to people what's going on, right? Why has the COVID response been so bad? Um, why are universities being uh, underfunded? Why is Canadian healthcare under attack? Um, Marxists can do that. Marxism provides a way to do that, uh, a way to understand it and a way to try to think about it. And also, I think, sees it as a form of practice, right? So it's not just ivory tower, pontificating, though it can be that, but th there's, there's at least this idea that that's actually practical work that's important, like organizing, but in a different way. And so that that's kind of where, where the kind of work that I try to do. I guess Marx kind of, you know, speaking of moral pontificating, I mean, it really does, he would have called himself, what, an economist or an, an economic philosopher or something along those lines. I mean, how does it mesh with sort of modern day economic theories that use a lot of graphs and math and seem very sciencey. Like, are they incompatible? Are they contrasting? Are they in opposition? Or Again, going back to the idea that uh, how we live produces our ideas, one of the consequences of that is that the ruling class in a, in a given society produces the ruling ideas. And so neoclassical economics, the kind of economics that you're talking about with with, with lots of graphs and, and attempts at being sciencey and quite often seeming to have no connection to people's real lives is, for, for Marxists, is ideological. It's purely ideological. It's a way to try to pretend that the economic situation that we currently have is somehow natural and unchallengeable. Uh, and if it's natural and unchallengeable, then you're just going to accept it. Marx, I don't know how he would have thought of himself, but 
but he is taken seriously as an economist by contemporary economists who don't subscribe to neoclassicalism. There is there are heterodox economists out there right now who take Marx's economics seriously, and they've had to extend them and modify them through the 20th century, obviously. But uh, yeah. take his basic. Like who's the guy? Who's the guy who everyone's buying his book right now? He's in Europe, and like it's like on the New York Times bestseller. It's on the tip of my tongue. I'm oh, Eddie Thomas. Yeah, yeah, he's the guy right now. Yeah, and I'm not even sure he's a Marxist. He's a, he's on the left, but I'm not I'm not sure he's he's a Marxist. But there's a guy, Anwar Sheikh, uh, wrote a big book called Capitalism a few years ago, um, which is an attempt to sort of make Marxist economics more um, more more similar, I guess, to the kind of economics that we're used to now. Um, so I mean, I, I tend to think of Marx as a as a historian, probably first and foremost, but then as a political economist, yeah. Okay, yeah, because I mean, even the you know Adam Smith started off as a moral philosopher, so I think you know realistically, it's kind of philosophy that's morphed into science or math or whatever the hell it is. But I, I want to ask about your stuff, what you're working on, because last I heard, you were first of all, I mean, we met at Carleton studying musicology some 10 years ago. How do you make this bridge from, from, you know, in, I know interests in librarianship and, and in economics and politics and how, where, where's the music fit into all this? Uh, yeah. Um, it doesn't as much as I would like, I think when we were doing our, our degree, um, I focused on, I was doing Soviet music history and I don't have, I don't have like a solid music background like you did. So I couldn't do like the analysis and, and that kind of thing. So I was doing music, you know, music, cultural history, I guess, really. And a bit of political theory, cultural theory in there. And I think it's the political and cultural theory that I really like. So for a couple of years after that, I tried to, I tried to get an article published and it got torn to pieces and that was a really terrible experience. And I went and presented at a conference on Russian music and that was okay, but it didn't, it didn't really seem like my bag. And so I kind of I left it aside. I didn't really do anything with it. So I don't want to pick on a scab, but like, what do you might like? What happened with the article? Why was it? Why was it torn to shreds? Do you know? Do you know the the concept of reviewer two in scholarly publishing? Ah, uh, I mean, I know like you've got a primary and a secondary reader on like a thesis, and like the first one is like someone in your inner circle, and then the second one is someone who's not in your circle. So when you when you submit an article for peer review to a journal, two two or three usually anonymous reviewers will read it and provide comments. And there's a an, almost a joke in academic writing that reviewer number two is the person who just doesn't get your shit, tears it apart, is un is irrational, unrealistic, really isn't getting what you're trying to put across, and and just hates it. And so I wrote an article on music in Tarkovsky, right? So music in, in Tarkovsky's films. And I submitted it to a film music journal. I can't remember which one. And they must have got uh, gotten a Russian musicologist or something to review it. And the comments that came back were like, how dare you uh, suggest that Tarkovsky... I don't even know what I wrote. How dare you suggest that Tarkovsky had these considerations and and wasn't just making ethereal, beautiful art with no reference to the real world. Like, how dare you drag this wonderful Soviet artist down off his pedestal? And you got Greta Thunberg, man. 
So I sent it to my advisor, our friend um, Jim Deville, who I'm hanging out with on Monday, and I'm gonna make sure he listens to this podcast. So I sent him the review and I was like, is this normal? This is my first time trying to get something published. And he said that was, he hadn't seen an evisceration like that in peer review. So I just pulled the article. I didn't even do it. Um, and I just kind of gave up at that point. Ugh. That's really shitty. Like one, one cantankerous musicologist, like, you know, derailed what could have been like, who, who knows where you could have run with that. Sure. Sure. I, I also, at the, the conference that I went to, I really felt out of my depth as well. Um, I, I think it just, it that particular area of scholarship, I'm interested in music um, and I'm, I'm really glad I did the degree, but I think scholarship in that area is probably not what I'm really cut out for. Uh, and then a number just of- Just because it's too like specified or like deals with music theory or what, what do you think it was? I don't even know. I'm not even sure. It might have just been me, really, right? I don't think it's anything to do with the field. I suspect I just wasn't ready, to be perfectly honest. Um, because a number of years later, I started uh, writing um, a blog about librarianship and kind of putting in political stuff there, and eventually got into writing academic articles around library history and politics and technology and that kind of thing. And that that's really taken off. Like, I really enjoy that. Um, and get a lot out of it, and I think it's worthwhile work. And so doing doing the the MA at, at Carleton gave me some of the tools that I needed to do that, but I think now I've more found the area that I'm interested in digging into empirically. So um, I think that's all to the good. Yeah, for sure. So you're working on a PhD now, right? That's that's in the pipeworks. Where, where, when, how, what are you working on? So I'm at the University of Birmingham in the UK uh, doing a distance PhD part-time, so I'll be done sometime mid-decade. And my, my, my broad area is political theory. So there are particular 21st century variations of Marxism that I'm interested in, and I want to uh, play them off against other non-Marxist political theory. And so that's kind of the theoretical framework. Um, but over the last few years, there have been a lot of really heated debates and controversies in librarianship around intellectual freedom. And so I'm digging into that as kind of the object of study. Um, so some of these um, controversies that have happened in Canadian libraries over the last, you know, two to five years are the case studies. And I'm, I'm kind of applying political theory to those. So I, I lurk very gingerly on on your blog. I have been there before. But again, you know, whenever there's a Marxist analysis, I, I've always, I've always been, I don't want to say I'm intimidated by you, Sam. Obviously I had you on the podcast. I think you're a very, very smart guy and, and I don't necessarily understand everything you say. So I go like very light footed, but you did have a case, like a law case. And I kind of know that stuff. And it was about the Ottawa public library, not renting its playroom to like a neo-Nazi film festival or something like that. And do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was really fascinating. So there's this idea uh, built into library policies that um, library spaces should be bookable by the public. Um, and there should be no restrictions on that. If, if the public wants to use the space, they should be allowed to use the space. And that's considered kind of a core uh, value of, of Canadian American libraries. Sounds good to me. Yep. 
And and some places have done things where if you're a if you're a commercial entity, you can't book the room. So if you're if you're a, a marketing company and you want to do focus groups, you can't you can't use the library space for that. But if you're a community group, go ahead. And one of the one of the major debates in intellectual freedom is whether the library should be allowed to prevent room bookings to um, hate groups or neo-Nazi groups or whatever. Now, I've been saying room booking because that's how it started out. Library rooms were free. They could be booked. What's happened over the last, I don't know when it started, is that libraries have started renting them. They are, they're rental space. Charging a fee. Charging a fee. And so they're, they're now, this is an exchange relationship. This isn't a public service. So the Ottawa case was, I think, um, two people wanted to screen a white supremacist movie and uh, rented the room from Ottawa Public. And Ottawa Public, when they, they watched the film themselves and they decided this was not uh, something that they wanted to be involved in, canceled the rental. And they were sued. And what the Superior Court or whoever it was found was that because it was a rental, it's not covered by the Ontario Public Library Act. It's not considered a statutory responsibility of the library to provide that space. If it had been booked, it would have been statutorily, the library would have had no way to cancel that booking. But because yeah, so it's not, so it would have been a charter challenge because it's basically a government agent, but it's not a government agent. It's just any old property manager that just happens to rent books. In, in, in this, in the case of room rentals, yes, yes. Um, they are um, a government agency or whatever uh, in terms of the services that they provide that are covered under the Public Library Act, but a room rental is not covered under that act. So they're considered, yeah, just another person renting a room. And so that, that should have been a bigger deal in Canada because in the other room rental cases, the library has, has basically said, we are not allowed to deny room rentals because, um, because of the Charter of Rights, because this is a statutory requirement. But this Ottawa case basically says that that's not true. Um, and so at some point, I'm hoping that the Canadian library world will actually deal with that question and, and we'll get some kind of legal advice to say what the truth is. Because I guess the other ones that come to mind, like I think in Toronto, there was a question about like uh, a trans woman having a storybook reading hour for kids. And there were people that were protesting and wanted to have uh, uh sort of all sides equal. They wanted to have somebody that was against sort of trans that was also going to speak. And they said, look, we can't have something like this because we need to, this is a public space. Everyone needs to feel safe here. And I don't know, like in your opinion, what should that look like? I mean, the Ottawa case, I don't know. I guess public opinion is probably that we don't want people to voice white supremacy in a public space, but, should we let them? This is this is a huge, complicated issue. Um, I'll give you like two minutes. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Toronto case that you're talking about. So a number of years ago, I think 2017, I want to say, uh, a room was rented to hold a memorial service for a lawyer who had represented um, neo-Nazis and Holocaust deniers uh, in Ontario. And there were protests there, but it went ahead. And Toronto Public Library subsequently changed their room rental policy to allow them to deny rentals based on, I, I can't remember the details now, but 
um, essentially uh, like a, a hate speech provision for denying room rentals. And so when this um, group in Toronto wanted to book a transphobic speaker uh, who had already, this had already happened in Vancouver, people were pointing out that Toronto Public Library now had a policy which would allow them to deny that rental. Um, they, they initially said that their policy meant they had to rent it to anyone. People pointed out they had changed the policy and the policies now said they could, they could deny the rental. They fell back on the charter defense um, that, you know, it would be a, an infringement of freedom of expression. And I think that one of the, the arguments that keeps coming up is that if you don't allow someone to speak at a library, you are completely taking away their ability to speak in public at all. But in the 21st century, that's not the case. Um, yeah, the, they have Facebook. The speaker in question has a podcast. She has a website. She speaks all over the place. Um, Toronto and Vancouver libraries denying a room rental would have had zero effect on her getting her message out. So is but, it just virtue signaling? Well, in a way it is, but it's, it's, in some ways it's hard to know what virtue they think they're signaling. They, they, are, they often claim to be um, upholding their own you know, core values or whatever, but the core values are often in conflict. Um, and more importantly than that, I think that one of the core values that they try to uphold is neutrality. And there are a lot of us in the library world who say that neutrality is just, it doesn't exist. You know, it's, you, you might as well commit to something um, than pretend that there's, that you're being neutral because when you're being neutral uh, or, you know, saying that you're being neutral, you're in fact committing to something anyway. So you might as well just be explicit about it. And in that, but in that case, it makes them choose either they're supporting transphobic speech or they're supporting their trans community members. And I think the library leadership doesn't like things being put in those stark terms. Um, and, and basically making it sound like they need to choose. They do need to choose. Um, and they can't hide, I don't think, behind neutrality and intellectual freedom to do that. So now you've got me on my hobby horse. Um, I, I was going to be doing a different project for my PhD, but I did the kind of classic thing where I was so angry about the intellectual freedom arguments that I switched topics, and now I'm doing this. Well, I mean, it, it sounds intriguing. I'm, I'm curious about what the what the outcome is going to be how that's going to how's that going to look i mean i have to ask that sort of cocktail party what your grandma asks kind of question what are you going to do with that phd do you have anything in mind do you want to are you going to teach you want to is there a book in mind or what what is what's the end goal with it yeah i um so it's weird in, in north america people just assume if you're doing a phd you want to become a professor but in britain where i'm doing I'm doing my program that they don't have that assumption. There's this idea that, you know, having a PhD is something worth having no matter what you're going to do. And I like being a librarian. So I'm going to, I'm going to continue to be a librarian. I'll just be a librarian with a PhD. Um, I do want to publish it as a book. Uh, you know, at some point after it's, it's ready, I'll clean it up and tighten it up and hopefully publish it because I hope that it will be a, a worthwhile contribution to these discussions over intellectual freedom, which we kind of have regularly in the library world. Um, and I wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago, which is a kind of Marxist account of library history. Um, so it would be nice to follow that up with something. It's funny how you say that here in North America, we kind of assume you're going to be a professor if you've got a PhD. When in practice, it seems like 
I know a lot of PhDs and I cannot rattle off too many professors my age that are out there. It seems like it's kind of uh, an entry degree to working at a chapters or something or trying to find a government job or going to law school because the whole academia thing didn't work out. And now, I mean, we're, we're shutting down. Was it Laurentian that just kind of shuttered its doors up more or less? I mean, it's not a good time to be a PhD, is it? No, no. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, that's changed over the last 10 or 15 years where uh, there are so many PhD holders in Canada and so few positions that they're, uh, you know, what Marx would call a reserve army of the unemployed, uh, putting pressure on wages and benefits for people who are professors. And, and yeah, it's probably not, not a consideration outside of the university. But when I mention it to other people at U of A, that I'm doing a PhD, they often just assume I'm angling for a professorship. But sure. I, 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 I'm not interested in teaching, I don't think. <laughs> I, I remember some sagely wisdom from my old dean at the law school, Bruce Feldthusen, who, when we asked him if, if our law school, somebody asked him in our first year torts class, and I don't remember who it was who had the stones to ask him. It might have been Eric. Shout out to Eric Girard if you're listening. It was like, you know, there's so many people at our law school. Is this a diploma mill? And, and you know, old Brucey, you know, being the cantankerous walrus he was, he's just like, well, people are always complaining about access to justice. And the lawyers are too expensive. And people are complaining, well, there's too many lawyers. Well, it seems to me that there's too many lawyers and they're too expensive. The lawyers could just charge less. And then we were just kind of even out in the middle. And, and I, you know, as, as much as I enjoy making fun of the man, you know, I can't, there, there is a certain kind of perverse logic in it. And I'm thinking with all these influxes of the PhDs, like, couldn't they just, I don't know, like, is there a model where you could just like teach a Roman history class without having to pay like $6,000 to Carlton having this like enormous infrastructure in there? It just seems to me that there might be some kind of untapped potential in there. Except that they're still going to want all of the Carlton infrastructure, to use Carlton as an example. Um, and we're not shitting on Carlton. I love Carlton. Uh, yeah. Um, they're going to want to get the most amount of tuition fees from students. So they're going to continue to have buildings, nice shiny new buildings, all that infrastructure, but they're going to want to pay professors less, which they're already doing, right? I mean, the vast... Uh, I don't know if they're the majority yet, but they probably are. The majority of, of lecturers in Canadian universities now, I'm sure, are not tenured or tenure track. They're sessional lecturers with like zero benefits, working contract to contract. So Not even. You record the lecture once, they keep the intellectual property, and you can die, and they can still use the lecture again and again and again and again on demand. Yeah. So... You know, and, and there, there was a, a push, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago towards MOOCs, right? MOOCs were going to be the big thing that was going to completely disrupt higher ed. That didn't happen. What's, but what's a MOOC? Oh, uh, massive online. I can't even remember what it stands for. Massive. I just know it from the Sopranos. Like it's like a slur for like some kind oh. of a paisan. <laughs> yeah. No, these were online courses, online oh. programs, right? Run by Coursera. Uh, but like some of the big universities in the States were running them. And this was going to democratize education was one way to put it. 
uh, totally proletarianized education was another way to put it. Um, and so we're going through that right now in the universities. Is it working? Like, are we going to have like a prefigurative society? Like, have we kind of come to this point where like, I can just find a PhD in science and be like, yo, what it is, teach me about electric cars or something. So I guess the difference is that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a certain proportion of lawyers who are self-employed, right? Aren't you? I was for seven years. I stopped as of last month. Okay. Okay. There you go. You don't find too many self-employed professors. Why is that? Uh, Why is it that people need a lawyer? And oftentimes I think they really just need a social worker or a hug. But why is it that they think they need a lawyer, but no one like thinks they need an anthropologist? Or a librarian. Or uh, a librarian. Honestly, like half of their legal questions they ask me is just me fucking researching it. And when I don't know the answer, I, I go and I bother poor Jen down at the courthouse library and she finds the answer. And then, you know, I'm the one billing the person for doing the stuff that she got for me for free because I'm reading it after the fact. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I suppose probably um, the liberal professions, the old fashioned liberal professions like doctor and lawyer weren't, um, you didn't need to bring a bunch of them together, right? If you've got a university full of doctors, they're not doing, you know, they're not providing the same services a a GP is to his or her patients. Um, If you had a university full of lawyers, it's not like, you know, it's not like you have law program. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. It's just different, I guess. I don't know. I feel like there's a nut to crack there, Sam. I'm <laughs> not sure what it is. I'm not sure what it is. I think we might be. I think we might be on on the verge. But I have to say, like I met a few independent scholars when I was doing the uh, the conference junket, and they always they always seem to be like. I mean, they are kind of like sole practitioner lawyers in that, like, they're a little bit gamey. You you know, you, you're kind of looking at them. You're like, they look like someone's rattled their cage. They've got a lot of out there ideas that, you know, it, I mean, like, there's the, the folklorists, I think, are the ones that are that are my favorite. That it's like, they're the anthropologists who want to give, like, you know, write peer-reviewed papers about, like, their Nana's jam recipes and stuff like that. <laughs> okay, but I will say... Uh, in, in Russian music, for example, there's a really big, uh, name, um, Laurel Fay, who is an independent scholar. Uh, she wrote, um, she wrote a biography of Shostakovich and she did some of the early forensic work to disprove the, um, testimony forgery in the 1980s, big controversy in, in the Shostakovich world. And she, she kind of blew the doors off that. So there are there are independent scholars who are, you know, really contributing in their fields. They aren't all gamey weirdos, you know. But the but okay, sure. And I mean obviously I speak in hyperbole. It's it's kind of my thing and you should know that by now. But podcast? Yeah, I know I got a podcast. That's my platform. So you know tens of people will listen to this and 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 take away whatever wild ideas I have. But yeah, I mean, okay, I, I appreciate that there are some, and I guess to kind of bring it full circle as an economic argument, I'm like, how do you crack it as an independent scholar? There's got to be, there's got to be some kind of like an Amazon meets Quora, where like I can just kind of like, I I want someone to like explain to me how the sun works or something like that, and you just put up a price, and we kind of just like, 
yeah, I guess Fiverr is kind of like that, but I don't know if they really have academics per se. See what I mean? Now you're just talking about like the gigification of, <laughs> of scholarship, right? Yeah, and then that sounds scummier than when we started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. on that very sad kind of depressing note, I know that it's kind of past the one hour mark, and I don't want to monopolize too much of your time. But you know, Sam, I had a blast doing this. If we ever get past the uh, COVID hump and we can actually like meet in person. I think we were, there was talk of you, me and James DeVille kind of grabbing a pint at Pub Italia for old time's sake. That'd be great. Yeah. Once we can travel again, next time I'm in Ottawa, I will definitely look you up. I had a great you're, you're inoculated. So you're, you're, you're good to go. Right. I mean, yeah, but I'm also in Alberta. <laughs> That that's a thing, yeah. That's a that's a bit of a drive, but no, this was awesome, Sam. I had a great time doing it with you. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. See ya. And just like that, another episode is in the can. Thank you so much to Sam Popwich for sitting down and chatting with me. I miss a lot of my old grad school friends. It's been like a good decade since I've seen a lot of them, and you know, you try and keep in touch with people, and you have varying degrees of success. But, uh, you know, Sam is one. I'm, I'm glad we had this chat. You know, there was a time probably in my teens and my 20s when I didn't want to hear anything that challenged any of my preconceived worldviews, you know. I, I've had the whole world figured out and I didn't want to hear otherwise. And, you know, a lot of the things Sam said were intuitive, but a lot of the things I wouldn't have necessarily thought of. I never would have thought of as a library an object, an institution, a building, whatever, as being any kind of a political creature. But maybe it's a fallacy to think that an apolitical thing exists in a world where everything is controlled through economies and nation states and the things like that. But, uh, you know, it really gave me a lot to chew on, but it's one of those things like good old Socrates or Socrates, if you're, you know, red. Uh, you know, that thing where he said that you don't know the stuff what that you don't know, or however he put it. I don't know, it was in Greek, but you get the idea. Anyway, this was great. I'm going to try posting more episodes with greater frequency. I've got some great guests lined up, and I hope you will tune in for those as well. And if not, well, who cares if you listen? 